Welcome to The Artiste, an original podcast series where I delve into the life and craft of an artiste. I'm your host, Luke Gibson. My guest today is one of the most in-demand stage and screen actors in Australia. Her body of work throughout her career is simply breathtaking in its sheer magnitude and diversity. She's a multi-award winning performer and is currently starring in the Network 10 drama series Five Bedrooms. Welcome to the show, Kat Stewart. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. No problems. Thanks for coming along. If you had a business card, amongst other things on there, would you put actor or actress? Uh, I think I'd put actor, but I must say I'm not precious about being called an actress. Okay. Because sometimes it just makes things clearer. But I don't, yeah, I'd say actor. Actor, okay. Now, the big question to start off with, what is acting? Hmm, wow, let's just jump off the deep end, Luke. All right. Um, okay, what is acting? Acting is um, bringing usually, well, actually, it usually involves a script, but it doesn't always. It's about um, bringing stories to life through performance, I guess. That's a great explanation and very, very succinct as well. That's fantastic. Yes, it'll all be downhill from here. Luke. <laughs> <laughs> now, you and I were both born in the same year, 1972. Golden. Tell me about your childhood. Growing up, you grew up in regional Victoria. I did. I grew up in a country town called Bansdale. Great. Which is about how far a drive from Melbourne? Well, it's about three and a half, four hours out of Melbourne. Okay. So you did something very interesting age eight, but in the lead up to that, talk to me about growing up. Were you a shy kid? Did you have many friends? What was the neighbourhood like? How did you go at school? I had a... It's boringly idyllic, really. I had a lovely childhood. Uh, it was, it's, it was a, in those days, I had a population of about 10,000, Bensdale. Right. And I had the same best friend. And when I say best, I mean, like, inseparable best friend wow. from the age of four at kinder mm. through to when I left in year eight when okay. I was 14. So I had 10 years of kind of like a great, one of the great loves, really, of my life was this best friend. We did everything together. Wow. And, um... Uh, I had a great little circle of friends, um, sort of in a country town like that, you tend to know each other if you don't mm. know someone, you know their, their sibling or, you yes. know, you kind of keep an eye on each other. And I was really devastated about leaving. I had a really tight group of friends. Um, I left kicking and screaming to Melbourne right. when I was 14. In hindsight, I can see that, you know, it was a probably a really good thing for me to kind of broaden my horizons and get mm. into the city, but at the time... Not happy, Jan. You didn't want to go. Didn't want to go. Interesting. So was it, was it the big smoke that you wanted to um, not go to? Was it scary? What uh, was the... it was, I just didn't want to leave my friends. And I okay. think that when you're 14, your friends are everything to you. Mm. Um, so I was pretty out of sorts. But having said that, you know, I, I, you know, I knew I was always, I loved Melbourne. I always loved coming to Melbourne to visit. And my dad had already been working he kind of left for Melbourne about six months before we joined him with the new job he was doing. So we were doing lots of trips and I was loving all that, but I was I was just sad about my friends. And that's interesting. I We moved, I grew up in Sydney, suburban oh, Sydney, yeah. and we moved to Hobart when I was 12. Wow. So, so it's in, in less, in, less busy. Correct. Yes. Yeah. It went from a city of, I don't know, close to 4 million to a city of, at the time, about 125,000 people. Wow. Um, but the same thing happened with me. It was... Um, those friendships, I thought, how am I going to keep in touch? Yeah. How, how does this all work? And, you know, Bass Strait kind of gets in the way of yeah. things a bit too. And also, you know, it used to be used to be pips on the phone call, on the phone. Yes. <laughs> like, it was a long distance phone call. phone calls. So, um, yeah, it's so different now. I mean, you don't, you're, you know, a FaceTime call away from anybody now, but, yeah. but you know, in the 
late 80s, it was, it was different. And as a, a, a small child, were you smart? Were you uh, funny? Were you um, outgoing? Oh, I see, you probably need to ask my contemporaries that, but um, <laughs> I... Uh, I had a, I, I had that thing where I was, you know, and I was in a little pond, you know, and I, um, so I had really tight friends and I was probably extroverted around my friends, but I was not an extra, I'm still not an extrovert. Okay. I wouldn't consider myself an extrovert mm. at all. And, um, uh, I was, you know, I've always done pretty well at school. So that okay. was, that was, that was fine. Mm. Um, but I think coming to Melbourne, was a bit of a shock because I was in a big pond and from never, like I was sort of always in the advanced maths class. I was always mm. getting good marks and stuff. And all of a sudden I went to this Melbourne school, which was, you know, a really terrifically kind of uh, academic school. I was not in advance. I was massively behind. I had to really? get a tutor to try and catch up. Wow. The school I'd been going to was not um, kind of... Uh, as up to date um, mm. back in Bansdale. So um, there, was, there was a bit of a shock to the system and, you know, it was just culturally a bit of a shock. And I remember kind of consciously changing my accent <laughs> after the first day. Changing your changing accent? Changing my accent. I had a very, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, 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 I suppose I'm pretty broad, but I was broader when I was in the country. Right. And um, and so I, I, I went from, I remember sort of being, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. To <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Proven truth. <laughs> yeah, pretty much that's what the school was yeah, like. Yeah, wow. Huge culture change for me. Now, yeah. you headed off to, to Europe um, quite early, is that right? Yes. Yeah, what, yeah. what age did that happen at? Um, 1981, 1982, I was yeah. eight, nine. Yeah, um, so right. What brought that on? Dad basically decided, I think he was about 36 or 37, he had three kids. He was a workaholic, he was a solicitor, and he decided that um, he'd had it. That was it. He was burnt out and he was going to retire. Really? Which is really cool. And yeah. so um, sold whatever, you know, didn't sell a family house, but sold whatever other bits and bobs he had and with mum. And we went over and he's very progressive. We went over and we did correspondence school and we travelled around Europe for a year. And the idea was that dad would never work again. <laughs> okay. That didn't work out? No. He, <laughs> no, that was not possible. We burned through the money really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so five of you travelling around Europe yeah, for 12 months? 12 months, some of the time in a camper van, but also we had a base in London and I got lonely. My brothers, I, had two older, two, I have two older brothers, um, so they were kind of happy to kind of um, bop each other and hang out, but I sort of, I was a bit lonely. So I went to school in London, which was a fantastic experience for me because I was, you know, I had friends, but I was quite insulated. It was a very safe, small world. And all of a sudden mm. I was seeing this great, big cities. I was hearing different languages. I was in a different, well, not that different, but you know, a different culture. Mm. And I, I had to kind of step up and be a little bit more kind of front footed. And it was just a really great thing for me to experience as an eight, nine year old. How far afield did you go in Europe? We did Spain, Italy, France. We did a bit of Switzerland and we did Ireland and Scotland and Guernsey and Wales and so kind of the mid, the middle area. Yeah and, yeah, and they kind of, um, I don't think we went anywhere too dicey. I mean, we stayed away from Northern Ireland, for example, because yes. in those days that was pretty, you know, there were trou- the troubles mm. were still on. So, we, you know, it was all kind of very kid-friendly. In those days I only ate Vegemite sandwiches and chips. <laughs> so, we, you know, we kept it pretty simple, I think. But it was, it was an amazing experience for me. So you came back to Australia and went back to the family home in Bansdale. Is that what ended up happening? Yeah, yeah. 
And what had you learned? How had you changed as a person in that time, do you think? Well, I, I mean, again, I was so little. I mean, I know I know that I was seeing the Mona Lisa and I was seeing, you know, um, all sorts of interesting things, but I remember what I was really interested in was how McDonald's was different in each <laughs> city. <laughs> and in how Spain, were they different? Yeah, when we're in Spain, you got to, you could have beer. Not that yes, I could have beer, but no. you'd have beer at McDonald's and there were nuts on the Sundays, you know, stuff like that. Right. So, the you know, I was, look, I was looking at it through the eyes of an eight-year-old, so let's yeah. not, you know. But in retrospect, I can see that that's when I started um, I started um, trying on accents okay. and, and as an eight-year-old, and I used to do the accents of someone. Because for some reason, there was a really broad cross-section of accents at this school. So um, there were quite, you know, posh kids and there were quite, you know, cockney kids. So right. I loved doing all that. So I'd, you know, muck around with accents from that age. Wow. That's but it was really, really important to me to keep my Australian accent. I became more, I was one of those kids that became more Australian when I was overseas because that right. was kind of my point of difference. <laughs> yes. So um, I didn't lose my accent at all, but I loved playing around with other people's accents. And did you, was it easy to pick up the pieces of your friendships when you got back? Like it was just... Well, I think this great love affair yeah. I had with this with this girl, Carolyn, who I actually saw. She came to see um, Heisenberg, the play I've wow. been doing the other night. It was so lovely to catch up. She waited for me. So, you know, I just slotted back in. It was fantastic. Incredible. So your bestie waited for My you. My bestie waited for me. She didn't kind of, you know, chum up with anybody else. She waited <laughs> for me. <laughs> so how traumatic was it for you then? Um, like you say, kicking and screaming to Melbourne? Oh, well, when I say trauma, I mean, you know, when you're 14, Relatively everything's speaking. like, everything's a three-act opera, really, isn't it? <laughs> um, so it was just that. But, you know, I, look, I made some good friends in Melbourne um, and I, you know, and I must say I'm so fortunate that I, some of my really close friends are from those years. So, and I've been seeing them, it's been so lovely doing this theatre show because so many of my old friends have made the effort to come and see it and I've been able to catch up one-on-one and have drinks with everybody after the show. So I've got friends from grade two, the friend I mentioned from, you know, kinder, Mm. and um, they're they're still other, several other friends from those years I've seen in the last few weeks and um, they're still very much part of my life. And so you broaden your horizons overseas in Europe and in the UK, but when you moved to Melbourne, that would have broadened your horizons even more. When was the time that you thought acting could be a viable option as a career for you? As a viable option as a career, only my 20s. Right, Yeah, okay. I never, I, um, I never thought, I never imagined that it might be a career. It was just something I remember in grade two, I had a teacher, Mrs McManus, if you're <laughs> out there, um, who used to get us to enact stories. In, in the classroom, you know, there'd be Bible stories. I went to a little Catholic primary school in Bensdale. And so um, uh, all of a sudden I wasn't so introverted and I kind of, it just felt, I've said I've said before, but it felt right in my bones. I just mm. sort of felt something would sp- sparked in me. And I remember from, you know, so I was, what, seven? Yes. Grade two, seven? Yeah. So from that age I remember loving it. Um, right. But I never imagined that it was a career. It was just something I liked doing. So when you're 14, you come to Melbourne, you're kind of in those last few years of high school. What are you thinking that you're going to do with your life? So the plan was, um, so my dad was a lawyer and my brother had gone into law um, and I thought, oh, well, that's the sort of thing I'll do. And I remember doing legal studies in year 11 and just wanting to poke my eyes out. I just couldn't, I just, <laughs> no. <laughs> I, would, I don't think I would have got the marks anyway. Oh, no, no. So um, uh, I thought, okay, I'll do business. And so for that, I thought... Um, okay, the most creative area of business that I could think of was marketing and advertising. Right. So I did um, a marketing arts double degree at Monash and so that was psychology and cinema and marketing and that was kind of interesting. I sort of thought, well, that'll be the most creative area. 
And did you enjoy that study as, a, uh, as I en- an adult? I enjoyed the psychology element. I guess right. it's actually been quite useful mm. um, as an actor. Um, and I loved the cinema stuff. That was great. Marketing stuff, not so much. I was all right. I was just yeah. sort of was meat and potatoes. Um, and I just sort of thought that was what you did. I thought, oh, well, I'll wear nice suits or something. It'll be all right. <laughs> Really? And then so <clears throat> fast forward to, you know, you've done that um, degree of sorts. You got involved in the theatre society there as well, Well, see, so that you? was the thing very mm. early on. I remember in the very first semester um, I, I joined the theatre society at Monash and from the get-go um, I knew that that's what I was excited about. So that became my passion and the study sort of became the sideline. And so had you seen theatre, had you seen musicals before? Not a ton. Just, I mean, actually, when we were in England that year, um, Mum and Dad took us to see a whole stack of um, West End shows, and I'd never seen theatre before. So I saw Annie, and I wow. saw, um, oh, I saw, I don't know what else I saw. I saw Barnum, and I saw The Mousetrap, and I saw, yeah. I mean, all sorts of things. And I, I, I thought that was incredible. Right, um, different world entirely. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Um, but I hadn't seen a ton of stuff in Melbourne and it was kind of during the years of university, I was going out with a guy whose parents subscribed to the MTC and they would take us to a lot of shows there. Right. And that started kind of opening my eyes too. Um, so, yeah, it was really during the uni years, sort of from age sort of 18 to, what, 22 or 23, I started thinking, oh, this is pretty amazing. But still, I didn't think it was a career. So when you were in the Theatre Society, which yeah. shows did you do? Well, um, it was, I remember we did a lot of um, one-act plays because we were kind of putting on, you know, everyone wanted a turn. So anything to do was to put to stage three one-act plays and everyone sort of gets a go at directing and stuff. And I didn't direct, but, you know, acting and stuff. And then probably I did a David Williamson play, I remember, uh, What If You Died Tomorrow. Mm. And I remember doing The Crucible. Okay. Um, playing Mary Warren in The Crucible. Yeah, just a, a weird kind of variety. So, you know, pretty bad, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> you know, but my parents and my family have always been very, very loyal and um, and they've always fronted up to everything. I remember we did a comedy review, which was just not funny. <laughs> Even though it's meant to be? Yeah, no, it was, yeah. Oh, some very, very varying quality there, but some good stuff too, and I, I was having a ball. And was that a good chance to, for you to hone the craft that you maybe never thought that you had in oh, you? Oh, look, craft's probably overstating it. <laughs> I was just having a go, and I, I was enjoying the feeling of... Um, being, you know, a part of something, creating something, being part of a tribe. You know, I mm. loved the, the social aspect of it. I loved the thrill of, of opening night. I mean, our seasons were like five nights long. They weren't, wow. you know, that was, it was, but it was a, ma- it was a great experience. Mm. And, um, and I was learning along the way and I was quite, um, I was quite serious about it in okay. that, you know, I'd say, okay, what am I going to get out of this show? I'm going to learn how to do this or that. And I, I was, I was, I loved it. Were you serious to the point in your head you just going, we're working on a Broadway, just like waiting for government? <laughs> no, you know, was it that no. kind of seriousness? No, no, not that kind of serious. <laughs> I just wanted to learn something each time and I had a great time and, you know, kissed a few boys in productions and stuff, had a lovely time, but um, yeah, at that age, you know. The show um, romance. Yeah, it was yeah. great. But um, no, no, and again, it was not a career situation. So you went out and got a real job for a little while. So after uni, I... Um, I went on, you know, went to Europe for a few months with girlfriends backpacking and then 
I came back and I interviewed for drama school at the National Theatre, which used to be a nighttime course. It's right. since completely different. But in mm. those days, it was a three-year nighttime course. And I thought, okay, that, I still knew I loved acting, but I was hoping it was a phase I'd grow out of because I knew it was a ridiculous career. So um, uh, I got into that. And then shortly after that, I got my first out-of-uni job, which was working as a publicist at Penguin Books. So I was sort of juggling flying into state and sort of juggling that. I didn't tell work I was doing this drama course. Mm. And um, and sort of moonlighting, doing late nights with um, with my theatre studies. So at Penguin, were you enjoying that job? I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was really interesting because I was, in the longer I was there, I was there for a couple of years, I got to work with higher profile authors. So the idea was, this is pre-social media, this is mm. in the late 90s. So um, you would get on the phone basically and get on the fax machine, oh. <laughs> the occasional email, and um, pitch different uh, authors and their books and right. organise them to get um, interviews on okay. radio and TV and, on, and print interviews. Yep. There weren't even blogs or anything those mm. days. So, um, uh, and, that, and then you would escort the, the, the writer you know, on tours of, you know, right. Sydney and you Melbourne. Were their or I was the chaperone and yeah. I set them up and, you know, briefed them on what to say and, you know, held their coats while they, you know, did their <laughs> thing. Um, and that was great because I was reading so much and I was reading things I wouldn't choose to read. Mm. So that was really broadening my horizons as a, you know, 22, 23-year-old. And I was meeting, you know, I was I was part of book launches at, you know, Parliament House and wow. I was part of, I was hanging out with country and western singers and I was hanging out with <laughs> Margaret Drabble or with, um, you know, um, Stephanie Alexandra or mm. Maggie Beer or, or comedians. I did quite a few comedy books too. So I was kind of getting exposed to all sorts of different smart, interesting people but also getting an insight to how media works. Right. And that, you know, um, that, you know, if you're getting an interview with someone, chances are, you know, obviously you need to be worth talking to but mm. someone's worked really hard to get you in the room. Yes. And, you know, the role that publicists play and how to behave well and who throws their weight around and who doesn't, it was very interesting to sort of the behind the scenes kind of observation of all the way, you know, the ways that people behave and the people on the bottom, the people in the middle and the people in the top. Mm. And the people on the bottom and the people at the top were, without exception, delights. But it was kind of the people in the middle sometimes that would, you know, be a bit tricky. It was really? Yeah, it was really, it was really interesting. So how long did that last for you? So I did that for a couple of years. Mm. While you were doing the National Theatre course. Yes, yes. Mm. And so, and then at the end of second year, I'd been cast uh, in the second year end of year play. Mm. And it's this brilliant play called Angels in America. And yes, I was doing... Yes, I saw that. It's STC oh, did you? when well, it first came out. This yep. was a different production. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and, but I was playing Harper, who's this fantastic role. Mm. And um, and I, I had... I couldn't do that and be at the Adelaide Writers' Festival, which was a very important kind right. of... Right, yes, of course. ...part of the, my job. So I had to make a decision. So um, I went and saw my boss and said, hey, guess what? Here's the thing. Um, I've been doing this acting course and um, I'm, I'm, I have to quit. And that wow. was So that was completely left of field for her, but... Um, was that a big decision to make? Was Massive. The biggest decision was a, That was life. a real fork in the road moment. But right. it, you know what? It wasn't... I agonised about it for a little while, but it was sort of always, I knew there was always going to come a point where I would have to make the decision. Mm. And I kind of, I, you know, stood on the fence for as long as I could. You were prolonging the inevitable. Yeah, yeah. but I was lucky. I'd, I'd, um, my best friend was working at the then AFI Awards in the right. awards department and she'd tipped me off or in fact put me forward, bless her, for um, 
for the the position of awards assistant. So I went straight into that, mm. and they knew about my moonlighting, and they were you know, and the hours were, okay weren't as that. weren't as insane. I wasn't doing travelling interstate, so that worked much better for me. So I finished off my course while working at the AFI. So how was that production of Angels in America? It, I don't know, but I loved it. And I actually worked with Tom Healy, who is the kind of the, the director that they brought in um, to work with this student production, and I um, just worked with him on Heisenberg. Yes, yes. So, you know. Full it's circle. So, it's so lovely, you know, 20 years later. So when were you cast? When did you get your first paid role in the industry? Um, I was lucky. I got a job straight out. Someone had seen... Um, uh, our third year production, which was Midsummer Night's Dream, I played Titania in that, and um, Kate Whitbread saw it, and she got she asked me to audition for a feature film, which um, I don't think was ever finished. But but it was it was a paid role, and it right. was a good role, and I got to that was my first gig in a film. So me and um, Ben Anderson, one of my um, classmates, were cast in that, and that was an amazing first experience. And then that led to a gig in a play. Popcorn, a Ben Elton play. Yes. Kind of, there was a connection with the production. And then I was basically unemployed for about two years. But at the beginning, it was like, we're on our way. But then it was, it was pretty, it was lean there for a while. And it was pretty challenging. Was there a sense of wonder that someone put some money in your bank account for doing this acting thing? Well, because I got it straight off the bat, I kind of thought, well, this is what... This is what happens. Should, and I was used to being paid... You know, I'd been working in the workforce for a few mm. years and uh, I'd given up. You know, I was on a career trajectory. Yeah. I was doing pretty well where I was. So that seemed fair. I mean, lovely yeah. and wonderful, but fair. So it was a real shock. And I'd always derived a lot of um, self-esteem from my work as right. a publicist and then working, you know, my first couple of jobs as an mm. actor. And so then to um, to hit reality, which is, you know always nipping at your heels as an actor mm. um, was really confronting. And then that's kind of, I think that's where people decide if it's the life for them or not when you hit, you know, a, a kind of a sustained period of, oh, shit, I may never work again. Is this <laughs> is this what it is? Is there a place for me here? Mm. Is this what I really want? Because this is really hard. So that two years, the, the hunger years maybe, mm. like you... What, what were you doing? Were you thinking, were you auditioning for roles? Were you still working at the AFI during this time? Uh, I was so, I was doing kind of contract work. So I was lucky. So I had that publicity experience. So I was doing up. contract work. So mm. I didn't, um, and I didn't do a lot of the work that actors usually have to do on the phones or in retail. I kind of, but the thing was that contract publicity work I did, they'd always chopper you in when, you know, things were desperate. So it was always drop everything and work your ass right. off. So it was very hard to stay focused mm. On acting, so I tended to never get auditions, like not succeed, do very well with auditions when I was doing that. Yes. Because um, my mind was kind of elsewhere and I was yeah. just sort of slotting it in. Um, and I was also f- learning how to do auditions. It took me ages to get good at those, I reckon. Um, so that they, they were strange times and quite confronting because, you know, I was surviving because I had this other job to fall back on. But, um, but self-esteem-wise... And just self-image-wise, it was really confronting. You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a publicist who does a bit of acting. Oh, what mm. would I know you from? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, <laughs> you know that right. thing at that time. Yeah. And then when did things start to pick up after the end of that two years um, or thereabouts? Well, so I was getting bits and bobs. Yeah, like I might get the odd little something here or there. Um, you know, Student films or, or, you know, I don't know, not much though. The big turning point for me, no, I'd got the odd. Actually, that's not true. I'm... 
I did get the odd guest role here or there, but there weren't many guest roles to get either. Mm. Um, so the big put turning point for me was auditioning for Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda, mm. and I joined them in 2002. Now, just while we uh, are on Red Stitch, explain Red Stitch. Um, obviously, people in the theatre community uh, and arts community in Melbourne know about Red Stitch, mm-hmm. for, but for interstate and overseas people, how is it set up and how does it all work? Okay, so Red Stitch has been around since late 2001. It was founded um, as an actor's company. So this kind of visionary, really unusual guy called Vincent Miller decided that uh, he'd been living in the UK, he'd made some money converting warehouses or something, I can't remember, and he decided to start a theatre company and he auditioned, he put out this flyer, these kind of shiny flyers and said, join a theatre company, it's going to be an ensemble theatre, we're going to put on 12 shows in 12 months, we're going to do everything, it's going to be amazing. And I remember thinking, mm, yeah, there's a couple of spelling mistakes and I thought, <laughs> oh, no, let's, let's just hold back and watch. But I knew some people that were auditioning. so right. I just sort of, And also the auditions were on the day of my brother's wedding, so I couldn't have done that, done okay. it anyway. So I was just sort of interested. Mm. And then I saw their first production, which my husband actually, now husband, starred in, mm. and it was dynamite. It was absolute dynamite. And I was just like, oh, you idiot. You should have found a way to audition. Right. So um, I found out, I'd met Vincent um, through workshops and a couple of, you know, it's a small town, you know, mm. for actors. So he let me know when they, they were, they needed a couple of people left and they needed a couple new people. Um, so I auditioned um, and I got in and it was amazing. It changed my life as an actor and as a person. Obviously I've met, you know, the man of my dreams. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, um, so yeah, Red Stitch Basically, in the first 12 months, I joined about, you know, three or four months in, but we put on 12 shows in 12 months in a little space in Inkerman Street, St Kilda. Mm. We made the sets, we put up the posters, we cleaned the toilets, we did front of house, we did fundraising, um, we, we did everything. And in the first, you know, couple of years, it was often single-digit audiences. <laughs> like wow. We'd count them. And, um, but it was amazing. We were all good. The standard of acting was always astonishingly good at Red Stitch, mm. and it was, but the we we none of us had really broken into the industry, and so we 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 tracked down. There were all these brilliant plays in those days in the early two thousands. It was a lot of in your face kind of British Royal Court kind of theatre, but it was stuff that was too edgy for the bigger companies to put on. Right, um, Playbox in those days, Malthouse now mm. was very much about Australian work. MTC was kind of a lot more. Um, I guess, mainstream, for yes. want of a better word. So there were all these edgy plays that were happening around the world in Scotland and Ireland and in Britain and even in um, in the US that weren't being done here. So we just got our hands on these brilliant plays, mm. put them on, or not auditioned, but interviewed act, um, directors, which was just such a lovely, wow. refreshing experience. Got great grads and, um, and lighting designers and designers in, and we, we just built it from the ground up. And it was the most... It was like a cult, actually, because we left, We, you know, we, we all broke up with our boyfriends and girlfriends <laughs> and we just, because we, it was just, it consumed us. Um, and um, and it became our world for, you wow. know, for the first few years, it was just so intense. And I did about, I, did, I was doing six plays. I remember one year I did six plays in a year. It was just mm. all I did. But in that, ex- we became really incredibly tight and incestuous. But also we got good, you know, because we were, you know, sometimes performing at night and rehearsing a different play during the day and mm. because the people in the group knew, got to know us 
and our work so well, you were really pushing yourself to be, we were kind of performing for each other and it was, um, it was exhausting, but it was, I look back on it as golden, golden years. And obviously that was theatre and you, mm. you know, the money coming in wouldn't have been the most anyway the mon- because you, no. you take a cut of the box office basically, don't no, you? No, when we went, when, I mean, Red Stitch, I'm sorry to say, still isn't in a position to give actors equity. The, 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 the money's gone up a lot um, and that's the key. I know that's Ella Caldwell, the current artistic director's burning ambition and passion is to get us to equity as soon as possible and to make it more sustainable for everyone because basically what actors do a lot in Melbourne and all over the place is they subsidise the theatre culture. Mm. I mean, people talk about the great theatre culture in Australia and in Melbourne in particular, but the bottom line is it's the actors that are subsidising it because they're doing it for love and then, Mm. you know, and we'll do it. If you're rehearsing a play in the daytime... Yes. ...and you're performing a different one at night time... Not always, but sometimes, yes. Sometimes, and there's that overlap. How are you fitting in time to make some money to pay the bills properly? Tricky. Yeah, it's mm. very tricky. It was hard. I mean, you can't sustain that forever. And you can do that in your 20s, which is where I was, you yes. know. And, um, uh, I, you know, you get, yeah, that's what actors do. You know, you you do voiceovers, you do um, get guesties when you can, you live pretty frugally. Mm. Um, and, you know, you do other jobs. And that was the, the great thing about Red Stitch was it was about building our careers and we were a real tribe. So if someone got a gig someone else would step into the role. Right. So it was all about promoting our careers. So Mm. it it wasn't meant to prohibit us from, you know, making a living and and building our careers. It was very much uh, a support for that. So when would you say, and obviously money is is a small part of of what you do, but at the end of the day, you've got to pay the bills. You've Mm. got to put food on the table. Mm. When do you think when you were in the industry uh, originally, you got to the point where I can monetarily survive with acting work? When did that happen? I reckon about 2005, I was making a living. Mm. Like I could could just act and do nothing else. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that time between the red stitch and see our paths crossed for the first time during kick. Yes. But I had virtually nothing to do with that you. That was 2006? It would have been, yes. Yeah, that's yep, right. Yep. And um, that was my first full-time gig um, on a drama series. Yeah. I was the runner. And, yep. you know, the runner is, um, you know, it's not a gopher role, but it is, um, it's full on. But mm. you don't have time to converse with many people and develop any kind of friendship or relationship with. So... And I was just kind of, I suppose, in, in amazement that, you know, this is my first gig as well. Mm. So we didn't have much to do with any with, with each other then. But mm. that time between Red Stitch and Kick, um, how was that for you in the lead up to Kick? Was that your first kind of ongoing role on a mm. drama series? No, well, so I was doing so Red Stitch concurrently with all these bits and pieces. Mm. So, um, uh, no, my probably... I'd done sort of guesties and recurring roles. I'd sort of done a bit on Blue Healers as a kind of a love interest for PJ Martin Sacks for a while. <laughs> yes. And I'd done, um, oh, and I did, in 2005 and 2006, I'd done um, series one and two of a show called Supernova. Yes. Which was with Rob Brydon, which was mm. great fun and great experience for me because I was, that was my first kind of core cast role. Right. And working with someone like that was really, um, uh, God, it was such an eye-opener and so beneficial. But it was also good in a way because no one saw it. <laughs> I mean, it, people, it was made for BBC too in the right, UK. It yes. wasn't really made for the Australian market. It was, mm. on, it was on UK TV, on Foxtel, so it was a very small market yeah, here. Yeah. So I kind of got to learn and make mistakes. Mm. Um, 
And weirdly, going full circle again, I worked with Peter Kowitz, who I then went on to work with on Heisenberg at MTC. So, wow. you know, it's lovely the way people come back into your life. Absolutely. And you and I are coming back to each other. Yeah, that's right. The way these things happen. Um, so I'd, I'd had a bit of experience by then, but it was early on, certainly kick. Yeah, yeah, it was early wow. on in the piece. That was 2006, yeah. And they always talk about, everyone kind of says your breakout role was as Roberta Williams in Underbelly. Do you, do you consider, is that an overused term for, for what it is, your breakout role? Well, I mean... What do you call that? I, I, in retrospect, I, I think s- that's fair because no one, I was, you know, I wasn't a complete unknown and, um, uh, and that was, you know, beyond my wildest dreams successful like you don't know like Mm. for all I knew kick was going to be you know an amazing you know success and it it was a lovely show but it was you know it was on a much smaller scale whereas Mm. um underbelly was kind of a game changer Mm. um but you don't know that while you're making it and I didn't even know they were so secretive about scripts I didn't know how big the character was going to be when I got the job I didn't know if she was going to be in a few episodes or all the way through and the scripts just kept coming and there was so much gold to do um so in retrospect, yes, but at the time it wasn't screened in Melbourne. Um, mm, that's right. It, there was no, you know, people were doing contraband sort of DVDs yes. in those days. But, Sending you know, them over the border yeah, yeah. from Albury to Wodonga. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so it wasn't like all of a sudden I became famous overnight. I mean, the people in Sydney did, but I didn't. I was just yeah, pottering okay. around. No one, you know, my friends and family hadn't seen it. So, but in retrospect, I can see that that was a really great thing um, for me. How exhausting was that part? You, like you, you threw everything into that. Like there was nothing, nothing left. It seemed like. How how did you go? Every night you've gone home from a day of shooting. How do you feel physically? Oh, well, it was just the way I attack things. Really, I mean, I'd been doing a lot. I was doing theatre, and um, I kind of I had nothing to lose. Like nobody knew who I was. And then mm. I, looking back at it, it was great that I was so naive because. I remember watching watching a couple of the episodes that someone had, you know, snuck over to me with my husband and there were all these glamorous women and then there was me. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember just being horrified at just how ugly it was what I was doing and um, how rough it was. While I was in it, it was fine. I was, you know, she kind of emboldened me and mm. I was, I wanted to just do it because that's what she demanded, you know. Yes. But looking back on it, it was really confronting. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to work again. <laughs> this is, what have I done? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Be- because of the ugliness of the character. Yes. It was just so bald, <laughs> you know. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, and then afterwards now I can I actually, because it was 10 years last year and I actually did a podcast um for for there was a podcast for Underbelly and they they um I went in and chatted about it and I thought before I went in I should have a look at some of the old episodes and mm. now I I look back and I hadn't seen it for years yeah. and um it stands up really well I'm really proud of it and I'm really proud to be in it it was really dynamic and a fresh show and 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 the performances are great and the scripts are great it was wild but at the time you it sounds like you almost felt ashamed of of what you'd done no not ashamed just self-conscious, you know, yeah. from an aesthetic point of view. Like, when I'm not vain at all when I act. I don't care. Honestly, you know, mm. it's just, you just do it. And the last thing you want to do is be looking in the mirror or, you know, thinking about that stuff. But, you know, 
I'm human. <laughs> you know, when you see, when you go back and look at it or see still, sometimes you're like, oh, dear God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I look 75 or I look <laughs> rough as guts or whatever it is. That, that's all it was. But no, I'm the, in the moment, I don't, I don't give a stuff. How did you research that part? Um, I wasn't able to meet the real person. Um, the producers, I wanted to. The producers were very clear about that and I respected that. So mm. um, uh, I spoke to who I could. So we, we had Piranha um, Task Force, task force yeah. um, consultants. So mm. I talked to them a lot. They were really, really useful. They'd had a lot of direct contact, but also there'd been a lot of surveillance right. on, on the players in that world. I was able to speak to people who were able to tell me about that secondhand. Mm. And also I was, I was able to look at um, public record, you know, court documents. And I also spoke to some of the lawyers who'd had direct right. contact. So I just, and journalists, I just spoke to whoever I could get my hands on. And the research department for that production were terrific mm. and put me in contact with a lot of people, gave me a lot of stuff to read. And Brilliant. I just devoured it, read books. Um, mm. There were the lead belly books and stuff. So, um and then the scripts were just so colourful and so brilliantly written. The dialogue was just so audacious and so blue. Um, <laughs> so, and then, it, you know, it wasn't, as I've always said, it wasn't um, an impersonation, it was an interpretation. Yes. Because I didn't have access to her. So um, then we just, you know, away we went. And, I mean, take me through then the, 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 the headspace that you're in. Like, um, you're acting like this. Is the director, directors, are they... Do they need to pull you back at all? You know, whenever I thought, is this too big or is this too far, I just reminded myself of the, the, the raw material in front of me. And, you know, she and Carl were, you know, they were astonishing, you know, and that's, they were, she's larger than life. And she's got terrific, the real person has terrific qualities, you know, as well as some, you know, trickier elements. And I just... No, I just wanted to to go there. And mm. and the script, you know, demanded it as well. And you had the opportunity to come back as her. What was the decision involved in, in um, saying yes or no to that? Well, the thing was, it was about seven years later. And, you know, when I did um, Roberta in the original Underbelly, the, the public, we didn't know that much about her. We didn't have that much footage of her. It was an, imp- you know, she wasn't the the media personality that she went on to become. And so I c- couldn't do the same interpretation of her knowing all this new stuff. It was right. gonna, I was going to be starting from scratch. Mm. And it just, I just thought I'm in a bind. I can't deliver in all good conscience. I need to start from scratch. Mm. And I, I was also, I was taking great heart in the fact that, um, Lockie Hume had taken over um, uh, Packer from Rob Carlton and right. had done, it, it, both had been such brilliant interpretations in their own right, but mm. quite different. And I thought, I think, I think someone else should have a crack at it. Okay. Um, and um, it just didn't feel right. I just, all you've got is your instincts at the end of the day. Mm. I just, it just felt, and I, but it broke, it nearly killed me because, you know, I love that role. Yeah. N- not doing it was really hard, but it just, I just thought I can't, make, I can't win because mm. it's it, it's not going to match up and 
you know, it just it didn't feel like it was going to be right. But looking back now, that was the right, the absolute right decision for you oh, to look, make. Look, I think I think Holly Andrews is a mate of mine. She she worked on Supernova, so mm. I knew her from years back too. And I think she brought her own um, her own unique, wonderful take on the character. And um, so, yeah, look, you know, you can't. You, you, I watched it with great interest, and I loved watching what Guyton was doing because mm. I just think. He's an extraordinary actor, and I just thought he did a beautiful job again. And so, no, it was it was hard, but I think it, I think for me it was the right decision at that time. Mm. Now let's talk about Offspring. That um, when did that come to you in your life? Were you um, did your agent say there's this part you've got to do it? Did you get to read a little bit of the script? How, no. how did that all work? No, that was just um, I'd been working with the brilliant producers. Um, Imogen Banks and John Edwards mm. on a show that I just loved, which no one talks about, but I think it's one of the best things I've ever been involved in called Tangle. Yes. Um, and that that came the year, a few months after Underbelly actually, and it was great for me because it was a show with cast I was just salivating to work with. It had Ben Mendelsohn, Justin Clark, Catherine McClements, mm. Matt Day, Joel Tobeck. Um, and a brilliant cast of young actors who've all gone on to do really interesting things. Um, and it was The Makers of Love My Way, mm. which is a show I just adored. Yeah. A big part of the reason I actually wanted to do Offspring, actually, because I just adored Asha Ketty in, in Love My Way. Um, and so um, I'd been working with them on Tangle and we'd done, I think, two series of that. We went on to do three. And that was just such a brilliant experience for me, um, playing a character who was so different from Roberta and she'd been, she was an expat sort of Brit, Oz kind of, she had a sort of a, a sort of a faux transatlantic kind of <laughs> accent and she was just so different and she was mm. so fragile and, and yeah, I just loved playing this character called Nat. And so they were putting together Offspring, um, Imogen and John, and they said, listen, <laughs> haven't written it yet, but here's the thing, do you want to be part of this? Here's the kind of the, here's the breakdown, it's, a, it's um, you know, this Proudman family, um, we're thinking of you for the sister of, of Asha Ketty's character or Cherie, who's this other character mm. who Deb Melman mm, went on to play. Yeah. Um, and Deb Oswald's going to be writing it. And I knew her work from as a playwright and thought mm. she was terrific. And Asha Ketty's going to be Nina. And I was just like, yep, yeah. hadn't written it. But I was wow. like, yeah, I mean, I mean, because I wanted to work with those guys so much. And I thought with Deb Oswald writing and Asha Ketty in it, it's, I'm all over it. But, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be. And it was, it, Offspring was uh, such a extraordinarily uh, rich and wonderful experience for me, and I think a lot of us sort of grew up on it in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, I just loved it, and it was just it was the gift that kept kept on giving. Yes, but um, you know, but it, we didn't know what it was to start with. It kind of evolved, and over the first series in particular, it really found out what it was. I mean, we had explosions in the first couple of episodes. It was so <laughs> different, but you know, just it was really fresh and inventive and. Gutsy. Well, people embraced fun. the characters, didn't they? The, yes. They're really, um, like your character, you, you know, it's very, um, there's, there's some flaws there, um, but we embrace those flaws and we, we love that. We love flaws. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not interested in characters without flaws. Yeah. yeah. It's just, um, I don't know, everything gelled. I got involved in the, the fourth series. Yes, which you is, did. You know, when people say, oh, which series is that? I go, it's the one where Patrick we died. We killed Patrick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some people have never forgiven us. No, yeah. absolutely not. When I say us, I had nothing to do with no, it. No, no, no. You weren't in the writing department <laughs> no, for that one. No, certainly not. But then how, talk to me about the evolution of your character in Offspring over the seven seasons that you did it. Um, well, 
she started off as being quite spiky, um, but she mellowed a lot. And I kind of, I remember when I did the pilot, I kind of, I try often to distill the essential truth of a character to just make sure I'm always um, checking in with that. And my, well, this is a little bit of an actor prepares moment. I don't usually <laughs> say this, but um, uh, my kind of mantra was to earn the right to raise my baby. Right, okay. okay that was Billy's thing. Mm. So she had let the family down. She was very much the underdog, especially in the early um, episodes. And it was very clear that um, Nina was the glory daughter who'd done everything right. He was the doctor who was lovely, who everyone went to for help. And, mm. and Billy was the screw-up. Right. And she'd, you know, caused the family a lot of grief and a lot of trouble, but she was getting things back on track and she wanted to have a baby. Mm. And that was in the first... I feel a little bit emotional just even talking about it. I'm so connected to that character still. Wow. Um, anyway, so she wanted, even the pilot, she talks about wanting a baby and a biological clock ticking yes. and, you know, and Mick, you need to get your shit together because I mm. want a baby. Um, so, but she had to kind of prove herself and make herself worthy of being in the Proudman family, earn her place and also earn the right to be able to have a baby. Mm. And they never gave her one. But I love that journey. I love one of the great things I think for me and on Offspring was the fact that it celebrated family and parenthood in all its different shapes and sizes. Mm. And Billy never got her own baby, but she got to help raise Zoe. Yes. And and it also shows the journey of so many people that don't get to have a family. You know, some people don't want a family, but a lot of people do and it's not possible for them. And I've had people very close to me who with, a, you know, not for, for you know, someone in particular who had nine rounds of IVF and it just didn't happen. And wow. she still, you know, it's heartbreaking for her. She's so happy when someone gets pregnant, but it also breaks her heart afresh every time. Mm. And it's, she said, I remember her telling me that how grateful she was that that was on screen. And wow. I thought that's a great thing. You know, for mm. a show that it's a lot about babies, it was so great that, that, that we saw a character go through that and yeah. find... Happiness, you know, it's not just happiness isn't always what you think it's going to, it doesn't always look like what you think it's going to look like. Mm. And parenthood and families, they come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And you you almost had to say goodbye to the character because after season five. A couple of times, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so to, like, how do you um, not bury a character, but how do you say goodbye to a character thinking that you won't see that character again? See, just, it's really interesting talking to you now, Luke. You don't. Okay. Even it's, talking it's to oh, about Billy's journey now, I'm a little bit moved. And um, I don't think they leave you, I, but I think you say goodbye to the people yes. that you're working with because that's a big thing. I mean, yeah. you know, I've clocked up so many hours with the actors who play the Proudmans, you know, and Ash in particular, but also Crops, Linda Cropper and, mm. and, and Rick Davies and, and all just like you... They, they become kind of your, as you know, working on sets, they become your family for a while because you're seeing them more than your own family mm, that's right. a lot of the time. So um, not having that day-to-day contact um, is a big thing when you say goodbye at the end of a series. And often you're saying each series, series to series, I think people don't often realise you, you think you're, you don't know if you're going to get re- renewed a lot of the time. Mm. So you sort of say goodbye saying, I hope we're back, but we don't know. <laughs> so you sort of, you're in that constant state of what's going to happen next. But um Certainly after five, that was it. We had a massive party. It was an absolute belter. It was a ripper. Um, But then to be back two years later was such a gift and Mm. I loved it. And then we did it again after series six and then again after series seven. But I think, well, obviously I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Do people stop you in the street and do they say uh, maybe during 
while while a series is being screened and go, your character last night, what what were you thinking? Like, <laughs> are, are people kind of talking to you as a person, or do sometimes people say that character really did something bad? Does the, that ever happen to you? The only time that's really happened to me was during season four of Offspring when you were around, and that was um, I remember being in a shop, and when Patrick died. Um, Billy and Nina were kind of estranged. Billy had gone off the rails. She'd mm. cheated on her husband. She'd driven the um, her business into the ground. She was a mess. She'd gone AWOL. And um, I remember someone stopping me in the street saying, call your sister, she needs you. And I was like, that's <laughs> a show. How do you respond to that? <laughs> I just... Like she was kind of saying it tongue-in-cheek because she, you know, she wasn't mad, mm. but she was... <laughs> she was really cross. Wow, she was really cross about it. It's interesting. A, that probably that, that we, you know, that, that Patrick was gone, but also that Nina was on her own. That she needed her sister. Wow, and I needed to, you know, get my shit together. My role, <laughs> I was on set locations. Um, yes, and as you know, um, on set locations for people that don't, you are the guy that everyone points to if some member of the public says, "Hey, who's in charge on set here?" Yeah. Uh, you know, the truck might be in the way. There might be um, you might have done something wrong. Um, where Too are noisy. your permits? Yeah, yep. yeah. Go and see that guy. That guy was me. Mm-hmm. But I had to be across all the scripts as you know to, to where we were. When mm-hmm. I read that you your character had um, had cheated, I just threw my hands up in the air and I went, <sighs> "What are you doing?" I was <sighs> for a little while, and I went, "It's it's your character." I was really angry because I you know my ex cheated on me. Right. Many years ago. Sorry. But <laughs> it's not your fault. I know, but it's rotten. But it was interesting that I had that um, that reaction. I'm reading it just going, oh, are you, no I, way. Can you imagine how, how you? I felt when I read that? Yes. Well, tell can me. Can you imagine? Like I had been tipped off. The writer said, this is happening. It's going to, look, you're going down. It's going to be bad, but yeah. don't worry. I remember them saying, don't worry. It's going to be okay because it's all for this line. And I'm like, it better be a bloody good line because <laughs> I was devastated. Yeah. And they said... They told me about that scene with Nina and Billy at the pool where she says, don't, don't, look, I'm thinking clearer than you are. If you're too sad to love the baby, I will love the baby until you're able to. And I remember going, uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and then it, and I kind of, so I went along with the awful, wow, awful that was the trade-off. spiral because I knew that line was at the end of the tunnel. And, it, you know, it's still my favourite scene of the entire series. Wow. But isn't that interesting that um, I'm not even seeing it on screen mm. and I'm having an emotional reaction to a script just going, Yes. Cat, how could you? I know. Well, it's not me. Yeah. Um, look, I broke, broke my heart. It was awful. Mm. It was awful. It was just, it was awful. Look, as an actor, don't get me wrong, that were ripper scenes. Yes. And, um, uh, oh, look, I, I, I got to explore. I got, you know, fantastic scripts to do. It was a great journey for me as an actor, but I just said, yeah, it was awful. I feel awful for Billy <laughs> and awful for Mick. It was awful. Um, and speaking of Mick, Eddie Perfect. Yeah, where's, he's, where's, he's never caught on, has he? <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope his musical theatre career works out for him. I hope him. it works out for wow. him. Wow, Beetlejuice, King he nominated Kong, for Tony's. Yeah, yeah, like, wow. You know what? He was always, this is, this is his destiny. Like, mm. he was always meant to be doing this. And look, honestly, it couldn't happen to a more deserving, lovelier person. Honestly, mm. I just, it's, it's how it's meant to be. It's amazing. It's astonishing that it happens like someone you know that well can be there, you know, mm. and yet it's 
it's just so right. It's so fabulous. I'm so happy for him. I saw him in Bat Boy. Oh, um, wow. Chapel of Chapel. Long I had another friend who, yep. was, who was in that. Yeah. And, um, you know, had a chat then, but then, uh, you know, for the first time meeting him on set, I said, hey, you know, I saw you in that. Oh, yeah. And I had maybe two or three chats of maybe five, ten minutes long on set in the back streets of Fitzroy yep. with Eddie. And it's interesting. It's you were a couple in the show. Mm. But you were very, very similar in as far as um, Eddie and you aren't continuing their uh, characters once cut is called and you are in the moment with the person that you're talking to. That could be me. That could be uh, the caterer. That could be uh, the best boy. Everyone, you are focused on them and what you're not distracted away from the conversation. And that's a really, really great and unusual trait to have. Is it? Yeah, I I think it is because um, it's a difficult industry. You've got lines to learn. You've Mm. got positions to hit. There's so much going on in your head as actors. Yeah. And with all the other crew as well, it's it's hard to uh, be fully 100% in a conversation. That's actually a really good skill to have. I don't oh. know if anyone's told you No, that. no one's told me. That seems oh, Thank you. Mm, like, no one's told mm. me that before. I kind of, if I'm, if I'm about to do a really emotional scene or something where I'm really needing to drill the lines, I'll go off somewhere quiet to yes. drill the lines with the other actor or I'll go somewhere quiet. Just mm. kind of, but no, but I'm, I'm up for a chat on, on set. It's well, nice. Yeah. It's about, about well, one of the best truly. parts about um, being on set, you know. It's very um, social. Now, I want to fast forward to Heisenberg, a play that you have just done with the Melbourne Theatre Company. Yes. It's a Mm two-hander. And um, because, obviously, you it's not going to be a spoiler alert or anything, give me the plot of Heisenberg. Sure. Um, So... Basically, the setup is it's a, it's a play by Simon Stevens, who's a you know incredibly successful British playwright. Um, he's done. Oh, look him up if you're interested. He's done lots of plays. Um, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time is probably the biggest recent play he's done. Um, but the setup is um, there's uh, a guy in his seventies sitting at a train station, minding his own business, and uh, he's uh, a butcher. He's Irish, just a very introverted sort of lonely guy doing his own thing. And this woman who I play in her 40s, um, from the, she's American, she's from New, from New Jersey, she's an expat, she comes up and kisses him on the back of the neck. Mm. And the, that's the moment before the play begins and the play jumps straight to the moment immediately after mm. and they're just dealing with what the hell she's just done. And she tells him that she mistook him for her husband, her dead husband, mm. and they start talking. And from there, I mean, it's it's called Heisenberg because um, Simon Stevens was um, sort of inspired by Heisenberg's um, theory of uncertainty, that idea that you can't predict what's going to happen moment mm. to moment. And if you look at something too carefully, you lose track of where it's going or how fast it's it's getting there. Particle, it's this you know, whole scientific sort of situation. Anyway, but he wrote that with that in mind. So moment to moment, and I certainly felt this way reading it when I I first came across the play, you don't know what's going to happen next. It's very unpredictable, Mm. unusual play. Where are we going? And also there's such an unlikely couple. They have nothing in common on Mm. paper, and yet they spark something remarkable in each other. And for me, it's a real tussle between, you know, is this the greatest, most unlikely love story of all time or the most diabolical cautionary tale mm. you know is she is she genuine or not what's going to happen here and i ultimately for me 
um, and it's not, I'm not really worried about it being a spoiler alert because it's no, all done and dusted yeah, now. Correct. Um, it's it's a really profoundly positive play. It's it sort of celebrates who we are as humans and that idea that you know what if we 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 try and con ourselves into the idea that we can control things that there's certainty in life. But there isn't. Life's random. Weird shit happens. You know, we might die tomorrow. We don't know. Mm. And what if uncertainty isn't something to be feared? What if it could be the beginning of something extraordinary? What if it could be a good thing? Mm. Um, and I just, I love the play so much. Uh, it's been um, exhausting but fabulous experience. You used the word con in there. Is your character a con woman? That's kind of up to the audience to decide mm. and also what I guess for the for the you know whoever is playing the role mm. to decide in my opinion no not not re- okay I think she she she's in a diabolically financial sort of diabolically bad financial situation she's looking for someone to solve her problems she wants to find the money to to, to find out where her son is in, mm. back in New Jersey yes the but, amount of $15,000 which is perhaps a little more than you would need for a ticket let's mm. face it but you know she, I think she's in real trouble um but so yes, she was hoping someone would solve her problems, but she is genuinely she's genuinely fallen for this man, mm. and it's for reals. So I think those two, both those things, can be true. You're on stage. I went and saw the play. Yes, uh, as which you is know. lovely. Video <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you're on stage. There's two of you. Yeah. Talk to me about your co-actor on that. Um, Peter Coetz is um, a fabulous actor who I worked with for the first time. I think I mentioned before in, in Supernova, but I hadn't worked with him since. So it's about 15 years since we've worked together. Mm. Uh, and I was very green when we first worked together and kind of probably a little bit reverent and probably, I don't know, anyway, I've loved it. He's yeah. magic. And we, um, you know, it's a relationship where you have to, it's, it's a living, breathing thing, you know, any kind of theatre that's any good, I think. And this cha- is different every night. You know, it's got a heartbeat. It's it's completely mm. reliant on us connecting and, and what it is each night and um, moment to moment. And um, he's one of the best. You're on stage for 90 minutes together. Yeah. You're doing a lot of that um, dialogue. She does not shut up. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yep, that's right. She's a real talker. How exhausting is that play for you? Well, while I'm doing it, it's uh, not exhausting at all because you're kind of in it and it's invigorating and she's got so much energy and that's mm. kind of in you in that moment. But yeah. uh, afterwards, and then I'm jazzed for about an hour afterwards right. with the adrenaline. Yes. Can't, even if I wanted to go to bed, can't. Just mm. you know, doing stuff around the house. I stayed up till you know, midnight the other night doing a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> Don't know why. Just couldn't go to bed. You know, you're just alive and awake. Yeah. Um, but then... The come down. The come down. And I wake up dragging, you know, in the morning. I'm wrecked. I'm just, yeah, it is tiring because it's quite emotional, emotionally taxing, but I, I just love it. Absolutely. Now, um, David Whiteley, I'd like to talk to... I think I've got a man crush on David Whiteley. Well, you're I, only human, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> you're a little bit biased. But he um, is a fine actor yes. and um, a lovely looking gentleman <laughs> as well. He's a bit of all right, yeah. Tell me about your love story and how your paths kind of crossed to, you know, be together and oh. the difficulty in being fellow actors. We worked together at Red Stitch. He actually auditioned me for Red Stitch. Wow. Um, and then uh, we... But it took us ages to get together we're both quite quite low-key you know so um even though I remember I thought he was a brilliant actor I liked his acting before I realized I fancied him we didn't make a move or do anything about each other for about three years wow I mean you know ridiculous um yeah we're not yeah so we're very careful people um (laughs) so uh and also we're actually both with other people in serious relationships at the time anyway Mm. so there's just no way but um when we finally got together it was very exciting and um 
Yeah, we've been together for about 15 years now. Wow. Yeah, and he's still a bit of all right, so that's good. <laughs> how, how do you balance you both being in the industry? Like, it's a seesaw kind of thing, isn't it? It is. Um, the, look, the upside is we understand each other. I can come home after a hard day on set or a great day on set or on stage or whatever it is, and he can understand what I'm talking about. Mm. Or if I'm having a trouble with a moment, I can sort of workshop it with him. Right. Um, in theory, you know, we don't run lines or anything, mm. but we can. he gets it, you know. Mm. And, um, for example, I always, you know, I didn't actually for Heisenberg because it didn't work out, but generally if I'm doing a play, I'll get him to come to a really early preview because okay. I really care about what, what he, he has thinks? to think yeah, and he knows yeah. me so well and he knows mm. what I do and he'll tell me, you'll see things that someone else might not see. Um, but the downside is work is unpredictable and we've got two little kids, so mm. it's juggling that. The yes. logistical stuff is tricky. Um, but, you know, it sort of weirdly somehow works out. Like I can't do everything I'd like to do because I've got kids, but mm. it kind of... They're not really decisions. I mean, you're, you're a parent. Luke, mm. you know what it's like. like you're not going to go. I'm not going to go into state for months on end for yes. theatre at this point in the kid's life. I'm mm. just not. You know, if I do theatre, I want it to be in Melbourne, really. Yes. Um, and it, it, it's you know, and that's that's fine. Like, it's I don't feel bad about that stuff really because you just want to be with your family. Mm. So it, it's it's a juggle working out how to. Um, how to make everything work, but it somehow sort of does. Five Bedrooms has been on Network 10 yes. recently. Yes. Talk to me about your role there and um, how that all came about. Uh, so Five Bedrooms, for anyone who hasn't seen it, catch up on 10 play. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I got involved because, um, oh, well, it's hard to know. I Look, I, I knew the writers really well. Um, Michael Lucas and Christine Bartlett were key writers on Offspring for a long time. So I've had a lot to do with them and I've also worked with them on another project that I was developing with with some um, with some friends for a while. So I've had a lot to do with them both and I just think they're brilliant. Mm. So I knew though, and I'd also worked with Pete Templeman who was the setup director and I remember he was working on series six of Offspring and he was telling me about this thing he was developing with them years ago. And I remember thinking, that sounds great. So the concept, mm. just to segue into that, is yes. that um, five singles at different points of their lives, different sort of backgrounds, socioeconomic, whatever, um, find themselves together on a singles table at a wedding. Right. And they're not people that would really particularly have dinner together, let alone do anything else, but they get drunk. They're bemoaning the fact that on their own as singles, they can't get into the real estate market they buy a house together mm. and so that's kind of – and that's all sort of – that's not really a spoiler alert. That's all mm. established before the first commercial break. Got it, yeah. So um, that I thought was a really fresh idea and mm. I just knew that they were terrific and I'd been kind of – I'd met up with the people at Hoodlum who were the production company and um, I thought they were doing some really interesting stuff and so I – yeah, I was really excited to get involved. Great. Um, and uh, it's been one of the highlights of my career, actually, as in terms of in terms of um, just being such a happy experience mm. all the way through. Just dealing with people who were so highly motivated. The scripts were in such just such great shape from the get go. There was such so little troubleshooting to do along mm. the way. It was just really smooth, and um, and I love the cast. I think the cast is just just not only you know perfect for the roles, but just delightful 
company. So mm. I've just had a great time. And it wasn't, you know, it was pretty humane. It was only eight episodes. So we were done and dusted in about 15 weeks. So it was a really, you know, we didn't have time to get jaded or get sick of each mm. other. You know, we were still on a high. So it was just a lovely experience. Will there be a second series? Look, the signs signs are good, but <laughs> it's. I'd love. We'll to, I'd love happens. to know. But um, mm. at, look, they're they're very positive. They're they're, they're scripting. They're writing. Um, mm. and we're just waiting to get official word. What's the best show you've ever seen on TV? Whoa, gee, Luke. Okay, I'm going to reel off. I'm just going to go a bit random. Yep. I loved Breaking Bad. It's one of my favourite all time shows. Yes. I loved Love My Way. Mm. It's one of my all-time favourite Australian shows, I think. Amazing. Deadwood was pretty astonishing. Mm. Uh, yep, yeah, they're the ones that just jump out. There's, I'll, I'll go home and I'll be kicking myself because I will have <laughs> forgotten something crucial, but they're, they're the three that just spring up. We've talked about um, your various roles. Yes. But talk to me about professionally and personally other highlights that we haven't yet discussed. Um. Personally, can't go past having our two kids, Archie and Gigi, who are just um, nuts and fabulous. Um, and everything kind of emanates from them. Everything has to fit around them. Um, so that's certainly massive. It was a massive game changer, changer for me and Dave. Um, obviously, meeting Dave, okay, that was pretty crucial too. <laughs> yes. um, and then... I mean, I keep things have happened to me in my life. And losing my mother a, f- a couple of years ago was really, you know, a game changer, mm. but not a highlight. Um, but certainly formative. Um, uh, in professionally, I think I've been very, very lucky. I really do. I reckon I've had some pretty terrific experiences to date. Um, and having coming off the back of um, a stage show and a TV show this year that I've that have been so um, fulfilling and so rich and with with character and, and, and they're both shows that say something good about humanity, which I really like. Not to be too kind of mm. reverent or earnest, but I just I, I like the idea of putting something positive out into the world at this point mm. in my life. Um, I used to you know relish doing the dark and dirty stuff when I was younger. And the dark, edgy, nasty kind of in-your-face <laughs> theatre and stuff. And now I kind of think, oh, yeah, I'd rather build a sandcastle and kick it over, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of that's where I'm at. So, um, but I'm really, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've played some great characters, and mm. I played the look. My, most of my characters have been pretty flawed, um, and you know, on paper, pretty unlikable a lot of the time. But I'm kind of, I think, as an actor, your job is to be their last defence. You know, mm. you've got to. You've got to champion them and you've got to see the world through their point of view um, and see if the audience can come along for that, you know, understand them even if they don't like them. That's a great description. Um, so I'm, I love what I do, you know, mm. and I just, I'm very um, happy that I've been able to keep doing it for as long as I have and I just want to keep getting stuck into it, you know. I've still got the energy and the drive more than ever. In fact, I just think my um, my taste is probably evolving, but mm. um, I still want to challenge myself. So what does the future hold for you? Are there are there roles that are lined up? Um, are there uh, projects that you really want to work on? Do you want to move into directing, producing? Um, I don't. I know I don't want to move into directing. Mm. Um, I know a lot of actors do and a lot of actors say you should try it, but it just doesn't really appeal to me. Yep. Um, 
I love, I think my first love will always be acting. Yes. Um, but I am more and more interested in having a creative say. And I've been very lucky that I've worked with collaborative writers and producers mm. in recent years that have been very open to input from actors and respect actors and their kind of um, their ownership of the character, not ownership, but their joint ownership of yes. the character with them. Um, so I kind of been a bit spoiled and I kind of want more of that. Mm. Um, So I am interested in helping develop projects and sort of I've been doing that kind of quietly behind the scenes for a few years but haven't really got anything up yet. Right, okay. (laughs) But but that's not to say that won't happen and that's Mm. still kind of bubbling away a few things. But uh, that's very much something I'm interested in doing. And look, telling fresh stories. I think it's really important in the current climate with streaming, with Netflix, with the fact that we're such and a sophisticated audience now, mm. we need to make sure that we're bringing something fresh and interesting and dynamic and worthwhile to the table. So I'm not interested in sausages. I don't want to make sausages. I want yeah. to make something really fresh and interesting. And um, I love that, in my opinion, Five Bedrooms is both those things, but in a commercial space, it's managed to be fresh and interesting, mm. yet it's un- unashamed, unashamedly commercial, but it's good. You know, mm. and I don't see why you can't be really good and accessible. I don't. Mm. I don't see that that they need to be ex- you know mutually exclusive. So I I just want to make really good stuff. Mm. Now, someone's a late teenager and they want uh, to be an actor on stage and screen. Yeah. With your wealth of knowledge and the journey that you've made, what's your kind of thoughts, advice on you know approaching the industry because it's very very different from when you first started. Mm, yeah, it is. Look, um, I used to hate when I was starting out. I would look for advice, and actors always seem to be so jaded. They'd be like, "Don't do it, run," you know. Um, Having lived a bit and, you know, been, you know, had my share of rejection and knocks along the way, as we all do, I understand that a bit better now. Mm. Um, but I think if you're driven to do it, then you have to. It's not it's not something you can choose not to do, really, mm. if it's what burns in you. Um, so, you know, that's what it is. Do it. If you need to do it, do it. If, however, you're doing it because you really just want attention or because... Um, you'd think it'd be a bit of fun, but there are other things that you'd enjoy just as much. Do those things because mm. it is really, can be pretty tough and there will be lean times, guaranteed there'll be mm. lean times. So if there's something else that can make you as happy, I'd probably say to do that. But mm. if you need to do it, go get them. You've described yourself as low key. Yes. Um, I'm going to use one word to describe you, authentic. That's that's the oh. word that I that I've come up with, I thought, how, how can I best sum you up? And um, you're just genuine, you know, you're sincere and every um, interaction that I've had with you um, on set, which is, you know, look, we've only reconnected recently, mm. um, but I really, really appreciate the fact that you've just kind of gone, let's make this happen. You know, you coming along and spending, you know, an hour of your time recording a podcast, it's a big thing to to organise in our busy lives. Yeah. So, you know, I really, I so appreciate you being so giving. Oh, oh thanks, Luke. No, no, when I when you messaged me, because um, I remembered you straight away, and, but also I was really happy to, but it was, it was a bit mental with rehearsals yes. and everything else. So I'm so glad we finally got here. And then we were both a bit sick at different times. Yes, that's right. It's been quite a journey getting here, but I'm glad we've done it. So I really appreciate your time coming on the show and I wish you like the best for, you know, whatever comes. And oh, the great thing is that you, 
you're comfortable with not knowing what's happening next. Oh, well. <laughs> in, some, in some ways. I'm used to it. I'm used yeah, to it. I think okay. um, I'm quite conservative in some ways. You know, I like, you know, I like knowing what's happening, but also... You know, I've been doing it for long enough to appreciate that, you know, it can all change in mm. a in a phone call, you know, and it does sometimes. Yes. But, um, and it's hard. You don't just know when to hold them and know when to fold them. <laughs> you know, when to say, you know what, I'd love to work, but oh, I don't reckon that's, that doesn't feel right. Mm. You know, sitting things out, not that I'm, I'm not going to pretend that the phone's ringing off the hook. Yes. But, you know, but to to sit tight sometimes and mm. say, no, I'm probably better off hanging out with the kids or whatever yeah, it is, yeah. you know. Um so the uncertainty is hard mm. because you can also take a job or, you know, audition for something and then find out that, oh, you know, there was a job that I nearly did. Had I done it, I couldn't have done five bedrooms. Okay. And I would have been absolutely devastated. Mm. So it's just, but, you know, it's life. And yeah. I've done, I've taken other jobs and missed, you know, yeah. So it's just part of, it's, you know, it's the game. Mm. But you just kind of make your peace with it because you've got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Kat Stewart, for appearing on the program. Um, Thanks, Lee. Really, really appreciate it. And we'll be back next time for another episode of The Artiste. Yay. <laughs> Thanks, Luke. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerber-Korn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood. Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground.